This week, we welcome Chelsea McLean, founder of Circular Economy Pioneers Australia and an amazing freelance public relations specialist. Welcome, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's great to be here. Great to have you. I think one of the things I wanted to start off with was how we know each other. Probably about eight to ten months ago, we, we just we ran into each other, and I saw that you were doing a lot of storytelling around sustainability. And, and my work is a, focused on really providing that data to support storytelling. We hit it off, and really, we've been sort of collaborating around circular economy ever since. Yeah, it's great to have met you because honestly, bringing the SDGs into business, especially people need help with that. And you've helped me with that to understand how to do it with the indicators, which I didn't even know about before. So we definitely need your skills and mine. We're a good team. For sure. And that's exactly why I wanted to have you on here as one of the, our very first guests. And um, look, and your passion for the circular economy is honestly for none, um, it's unmatchable, right? I, I always love to see your enthusiasm. Even watching you here on, over the Zoom is just, you're always so happy to talk about it. It's just great to carry that vibe. Thank you. I, I absolutely love the circular economy and I really am excited about sharing it with people. Um, it's kind of a new concept to most people, so explaining it makes me really happy. Well, you know, you just mentioned about sharing it. And I heard, well, you had mentioned it. You're actually going to be starting a education in high schools program. So we'll get back to that a bit later. And I can't wait to hear more about it. So just to get us started, what, what is the circular economy to those listeners who this is a completely new concept in, in layman's terms? Well, in a nutshell, a circular economy values waste as a resource. So it makes the products that we use today into the resources that we use tomorrow with materials that flow in continuous cycles. What actually are the benefits of a, a circular economy? There are so many. The business opportunities are the main um, massive benefit. The World Economic Forum has measured there's a $4.5 trillion opportunity over the next decade if we can become more circular with our economies worldwide. And also, there's a massive number of new jobs that can be uh, created from this. Uh, we already know about three times more jobs come from recycling than linear economies. And um, that, that's certainly true with circular economy. And it's also going to create better health and environmental outcomes. So the benefits are huge. Well, just let's talk about jobs because as you and me both know, as these educators for sustainability, is that we hear all the time, Oh, what about the economics? And, you know, our job has been trying to educate people that the economic um, proof is, is very strong and it, it, it really these sustainability um, applications and solutions will just make us just as much money, if not more. So I'd like for you to talk to our audience a bit more about the jobs to circular economy. Great. Well, I love the three times more um, stat that's getting out there a lot widely now in Australia, three times more jobs from recycling industries. Uh, which is a bit different than circular economy recycling. But the KPMG did a report recently for the CSIRO, which said that circular economy in the next five years could create 17,000 jobs. So we are talking about a large number. Wow. If I'm, I'm guessing, I don't have any um, evidence of this, but outside of people who are in sustainability circles, circular economy is not a wide known term. So look, where did, where did this originate? 
Good question. It's not new. Um, it's definitely been evolving at least since the 1980s. But the idea of waste being a resource is as old as nature itself, really. And nobody seems to know exactly when the term circular economy was first used. But it brings together a lot of major schools of thought. And there's um, Walter Stiles, um, one of the main leaders of it, and he calls his the performance economy um, school of thought or functional service economy. Then there's the old cradle-to-cradle design philosophy, biomimicry, industrial ecology, natural capitalism, regenerative design, and blue economy systems approach. So they're all quite old. And it's just really been framed in a new way recently. Yeah, look, you're definitely educating me here. I didn't realize that there was so many similar, so much similar terminology, if you will. So um, look, I guess the reality is, is that since there are all of these previous ways of looking at circular economy uh, principles and practices, if we had to sum it up, what, what are the main principles of circular economy that are sort of really driving the, the current movement? There's three principles. And the first one is to design out waste. So waste becomes like a dirty word. There is no such thing anymore. So the first, design out waste and pollution. The second, keep products and materials in use for as long as possible and at their highest value. And the third is to regenerate natural systems at the same time. Okay. I really need to know, when you say keep something in use at its highest value, what what does that mean? So a good example is coffee grounds. So instead of sending coffee grounds straight to a composting facility, Um, or, well, even if you were to divert them from landfill and put them back in the soil, there's things that could be done with them first. For instance, coffee grounds still have a lot of caffeine content in them. So ideally, we'd be getting the energy drink manufacturers to take used coffee grounds from a cafe or a restaurant and then extract that caffeine before sending them to a composting facility. So that's where highest value comes in. You do a really amazing job of explaining this. So I almost want to go back to that, that talking about the, the high school. How, how do you present these principles and stuff to the high schools? And, and please tell us more about this program. Ah, thank you. This is my favorite. You know, I think kids get this quite naturally. And it is quite simple, depending on the age, to find examples on this. Um, I really believe, though, if we can educate our young people about this and give them the opportunities to be part of the solutions and design the products and systems and technologies that we need, they are the ones that are going to lead us towards this transition. And so I sort of feel very passionate about my calling to create a movement of kids fighting climate change by designing out waste and pollution and coming up with all the strategies around that. My hat goes off to you. Great, great work that you're doing. But one of the things that sort of really stood out in that last one was about the designing our solution. So, uh, and so I really just want to dip into how maybe um, local organizations, local government, local businesses could get involved at the community level to really understand the perspectives of these stakeholders so that way they can um, help with circular economy principles. Yes, local governments around Australia are starting to catch on, some quicker than others. And they are starting to, like the state governments, have their own policies around circular economy. But I think at the basic level, if we can educate a school student about circular economy, you know, we all know that kids think outside the box. They're not programmed to think um, the way that adults are, which is why I love the idea of letting them come up with ideas. 
because honestly, we need to innovate. We're going to need so much creativity, so much systems thinking, so much critical thinking, so much failure and resilience to come up with these innovations and inventions. And that's what kids need at school today, because when they come out tomorrow as graduates, they are going to be the ones needing to do this work and we need to prepare them right now. So local governments can help do that. Um, I'm thinking of running a competition that local governments can definitely be involved in. So once we educate students about what circular economy is, um, our first goal is to enable school teachers to do that and then um, to have a platform where they can enter a competition to design and invent some circular solutions. And local governments, I want to bring them in I want to bring corporates and sponsors and partners all in. Look, I love it. You know, I'm such a big fan of systems and design thinking that I I just absolutely love what you're going for here. I think one of the ways to help you communicate this and and to bring in some, you know, greater participation and so forth and to really sort of make this more of a uh, mainstream and, and commonplace initiative is if we could sort of create these more practical examples. So where I'm getting that with this is that how circular is certain communities around Australia and Queensland? And once we understand how circular they are, we can sort of apply these these concepts and this educational program that you're talking about based off of these real world examples. So just to step back for a minute, how circular are many you know communities around Australia and Queensland at the moment? Good question. So the, I, the best way to measure it that I've found is a global uh, report called the Circularity Gap Report. So every year they measure the circularity of resources around the globe. So I, I'll get back to local in a second. But globally, the economy at the moment is measured to be 8.6% circular, which means that 91.4% of materials that we use around the world are never recycled back into the economy. So therefore, Australia um, is one of the least circular countries in the world. Um, I couldn't put my finger on this, but I heard when the GAP report came out that Australia was at around 1%. So we are not tracking that well globally. Norway is at about 2.4% and the Netherlands are right up at about 25%. So they're really leading the way when it comes to circularity as being measured. And I don't know how else... There, we're able to measure it at this stage. Um, I'm sure there are ways, but I'm still learning about those. Trying to, to work out how to measure this stuff is really going to be really dependent on those who are participating and, and the stakeholders. And look, just like anything I think in the world, it's about culture. And what we do here in Australia is going to be different than those in Norway or the United States or China, the Middle East, wherever. So I think that is going to have a lot to play with it as, as we really start to look at some of these solutions. Can you name some, well, you did mention that the Netherlands is doing really well. What separates them, I guess, from a country such as Australia? Right. Well, I think uh, most of us that have any sort of waste knowledge know that the, um, those countries do very well in Europe and um, the Nordic countries around um, uh, resource recovery. So in Sweden, for example, they are recovering um, a lot of their resources. I'm not sure about Sweden statistics because I couldn't find them on the Circularity Gap website. But um, I know that they have so many systems in place to capture organics and use them for the heating, which they have massive energy requirements for. 
And so I believe that, you know, Europe and particularly um, the Nordic countries as well are really leading the way. In fact, they've already included circular economy in their school curriculum in, in the um, Nordic countries and uh, Finland and Sweden. Excellent. I would be so honored if you're one of the leaders of, of implementing these circular economy uh, these principles here in Australia. Just would be absolutely amazing. Thanks, Marcus. I intend to be. <laughs> I, I know you do. You're very, um, you're a go-getter, that's for sure. So look, I think that um, if we can, and even as our listeners listen in, some of the things I think we first have to unpack is the issues and challenges to you being this leader in education in, in Australia and really helping businesses. And, and even if this doesn't involve you, just any organization or local council or what are the issues and challenges that we must overcome to really start to hone in on, on a circular economy? Yeah, good question. Well, collaboration is a real key to circularity. So collaboration is going to be essential, but not easy. Um, I think um, one of the circular economy leaders, uh, Steve Morris from Close the Loop, he's Planet Arc circular economy leader as well. He has a great quote uh, where he says, um, well, he says, first of all, zero waste to landfill drives innovative thinking. But he also says that, you know, it's about, it's about, it's 80% social. It's 80% um, of circular economy is about forming partnerships and relationships with other people. I'll give you an example of that. There's a great platform called Aspire, which was developed by the CSIRO, and it's all about resource exchange. So if a business has some things that they want to get rid of, I want to call them resources, not waste, to get rid of, and they want some resources to pull in, they can use the Aspire platform, which has been sponsored by local councils around the country. They can log in if their council pays for a subscription for free and see what other um, companies or organisations around the country have to spare. That could be anything from fill, as in soil, um, that fills um, land. Um, It could be anything to do with signage, old signage. Um, I think Aspire even had a phone call. Somebody had about 10,000 pairs of Havaiana thongs and they wanted to know, would anyone need these? I think the answer to that question was no. You'd probably be better off donating them to charity and getting some PR for it. But it could be absolutely anything. So it's a brilliant example of how do you collaborate to share resources. So yeah, there was some, also some really good stuff in there that you were talking about with as far as perspectives. And I love how you changed that into turning it into resources. And I love the fact that you flipped that around because... Look, isn't that the key to collaboration is being able to talk into someone's language and understand how you can communicate this to them in order to form those partnerships. So I, I really support this, um, this movement, gathering stakeholder input to understand how to communicate, which in turn, which will support collaboration. So great stuff. Um, look, moving on here. What are, what are some, let's explore some different business models and how they can be applied in certain contexts. So. I know you sort of gave this listing um, these different examples earlier, but let's just say local rural council in Australia is sitting on on top of a lot of tires or they don't really know what to do with all of their agricultural waste. How does how do those two examples really apply to circular economy? Yes, so that that's where that's where I love this CSIRO developed Aspire platform because we need to be able to connect to find somebody else who basically would treasure your trash, isn't it? So um, 
So when it comes to, I'll just unpack the five business models of the circular economy. Is that okay? Yeah, if we it. talk about them. So the first one's remanufacturing where you're going to transform unwanted products into something that's newly produced at a fractional cost with less energy and resources. So an example of that might be um, Worn Up is an um, organisation getting schools to collect old school uniforms and remanufacturing fabric into new products. So that's a really great one for textiles. The second one's recycling and recovery where used materials are treated um, to make them suitable for reuse. And that's just like Containers for Change, the 10 cent container exchange program. The third business model is the sharing economy, where you have an organised network for renting, lending, bartering services, transport. So that's um, tool libraries, Uber, um, those kinds of things. The fourth model, servitization, uh, where manufacturers become service providers. And product as a service could be, I love the copper mining example because there's a, a model that where copper mines could actually lease copper for something like a wind turbine to create the renewable energy for a fixed period of about 25 years, for example. But they keep ownership of that valuable copper um, and it's about access over ownership where you sell a service instead of a product. And there's all sorts of great examples. I have so many more on that servitization model. But the fifth and last business model is product life extension, where products that ultimately have a longer lifetime, for example, LED lights versus um, consumable light bulbs, you know, we're going to make them last for longer. Sorry, I know that was a lot of information. <laughs> I, I love it when guests come on and provide these lists because that's one of the beauties about a podcast is that our guests can rewind and really start to learn from this. So look, again, our purpose as sustainability professionals is to educate. So thank you very much. If you had to go through, I know that all those models that you talked about are different. Let's talk about maybe some pros and cons for, for businesses here in Australia. Because again, I, when I think about who we can really help and where I see us making the biggest difference is with SMEs. That is where, you know, over 90% of business is done through small to medium-sized enterprises. And I think that if we can really educate and make a difference there, then we're really headed in the right direction. So just a couple of uh, pros and cons that some of our SME listeners out there can, can take into their workplace. Yeah, I, know, I don't mean to keep coming back to it, but I love the Aspire platform because anyone that uses or has um, resources can hop on right now and use that. It's ready to go. Um, and it's Aspire SME um, is the web URL. So obviously it's for SMEs. That's why I think of it straight up. But I have got a whole list of other things that SMEs can do um, just themselves in their own businesses, which can also be applied to individual actions. Should I give you that list now? Please do. Excellent. Well, organics is actually my favourite Um my favorite. In circular economy, they draw a line down the middle and separate between biological nutrients and technical nutrients. So the technical nutrients being plastic, metals, um, glass, and the biological being anything that can be returned to the earth. And that includes bioplastic. So for instance, composting um, food scraps is something that every business can do. So whether you're a restaurant or just an office, you can be providing um, separate bins for staff to pop their um, organic waste and their containers um, for change for the 10 cents, as well as their paper, as well as their soft plastics, um, as well as landfill bins. So um, at the really, you know, breaking it down to localised action, 
even uh, so households, but even businesses can be giving people the chance to separate waste because if we can't separate it, resources, then we can't um, recover them, right? So, um, so I love that example of something that SMEs can do. That really will make a big difference. It might seem a small thing just to start by separating your own resources, but it's where this, the big differences come from the behaviour change around these small incremental changes. And the key is valuing waste as a resource. So if we can get people doing that in their own houses um, and in their own offices, then that will impact at a bigger level. You, you've just touched upon, again, perspectives, right? If we can change perspectives, if we can understand perspectives of these various stakeholder groups and of, of those who are maybe not as switched on to circular economy principles right here and now, but if we can actually, again, get that education, understand those perspectives, then we can start to communicate and tailor these solutions to, to appeal to them. All this is great, but one of the purposes of the Insight into Impact uh, podcast is about measurement, all right? So I, as, as much as I'm a supporter is can circular economy principles and actions be measured? It's a really good question. I think people in circular economy are really rushing to figure this out. Um, I did a course at Griffith Uni with um, Ashley and Jay Morris from Corio, and they had Ken Webster, who was one of the he was one of the guys at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation who sat down in the UK with Ellen MacArthur and a couple of others and decided to frame the circular economy. And he said to us that we need to get, or let's get, let's get circular and let's get the ball rolling. Then we'll measure it later. Let's just start anyways. But that's not enough for you, so I'm not going to leave it there. I think the Ellen MacArthur Foundation is really the world leader. Um, they've really done the best job of framing this. And they have a tool called Circulitics, which um, I'm not completely across, but it measures a company's entire circularity, not just um, products and material flows, but of the whole business. But that's from more of a company level. There's a, um, a, a really great leader here in Australia called Kat Heinrich from Raw Tech, um, uh, Heinrich, the Heinrich, and she has a website called circularitymetrics.com. She's Adelaide-based. And she's a passion for food waste, but she's also a passion, has a passion for circular economy. And she is starting to go on a measurement journey. Um, you can go to her website, circularitymetrics.com and sign up for updates. She's going to measure in terms of benefits to the environment through um, greenhouse gas emission savings and benefits to the economy through jobs created and contribution to GDP. So I think they're probably some things that we can all do is measure you know, carbon footprints and, you know, jobs and profits. There's a lot of different options out there. And look, there is no just no one way to measure something. You know, as you know, the work that we do at Third Eye is about measuring perspectives and how we can actually improve, in, you know, increase positive impact through understanding the perspectives of stakeholders. So when you, when you throw on all of these different ways to measure, I love the creativity. I love the innovation. And look, I actually do agree with you that let's just do it and sort of measure it later, but it's important to the purpose of measurement is really to understand how we can continually do it better. Right. And so that's why I stress measurement so much is because that's where I see is if we don't measure them, we're not going to really know how good of a job we're doing, but look, we have to get started somewhere. So you've sold me, that's for sure. Can I also add something that Kat said on her website? 
she says that if we're going to create investment in circular economy, we need to convince investors of these things. That's where we need to measure um, the economic and environmental benefits. Um, so we're also going to have to change insurance models because um, when I started learning about circular economy, my favourite example was why can't I, why do I need to own a washing machine that has to go to landfill uh, when it breaks in a couple of years? Why can't Fisher and Paykel um, own that washing machine and sell me the service of washing my clothes? So they can re retain um, ownership of all of those precious parts in the machine and recover them and repurpose them. And um, so that model doesn't exist because of insurances as well. Um, Jody Bracou, who's an um, important leader, she's worked with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and is now in Australia, or she might have gone back there for a little bit. So she's, um, she said it's insurances. We have a lot of work to do on that here. So I guess the measurement will enable us to attract the investment and all of the other things that we'll need to enable circular economy as well. And that, again, it comes down to perceptions. And that's, and that's an issue, right? Insurance has played such an important role in all of our lives to, to degrees that I think that many of us don't quite even can comprehend, right? And, and I think that those, you know, and that's where it takes, you know, the policymakers and the government officials to really get on board with this and, and really start pushing it in the right direction. And again, as we, as we remain divided by party and agenda and so forth, we continue to sort of put these agendas to the side. And we really need to sort of come together and focus on these things that climate change is real. There's, there's absolutely no denying it. So we really got to get all, get all the politicians on board for this. Um, just because this is the Insight into Impact podcast, I'm just going to ask you one more time, is there any other measurements or factors out there to help people know if they're on the right track? Well, there is one way. Uh, we have a solid waste to landfill levy that varies quite significantly state by state in Australia. South Australia has the highest uh, landfill levy, which um, for years and years they've been giving 50% of to our, our recycling and resource recovery initiatives. So South Australia has measured that 84% of their unused resources are diverted away from landfill for reuse and, and captured. Um, which is a great statistic. And it all comes down to the fact that their landfill levy has been so high they've been enabled to do that. Now, New South Wales just put their levy up to match South Australians at about $140 per tonne, and that's the um, solid waste to landfill levy. And uh, unfortunately, Queensland's still at around half that number. So you can see why some states have a lot um, more success with resource recovery than others because I think that landfill levy is a really important lever um, to enable, you know, resources to keep circulating and because really it's going to cost businesses and councils so much more to put things in a landfill than it will to come up with the solutions we need to keep those resources in use. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And you actually touched upon two great things, the economics and what it actually, and again, um, for those who still aren't completely sold on how environmental and social issues do result in, you know, greater economic prosperity, we do have to be very blunt about saving dollars through X or Y. And, and you touched upon that. And you also started to talk about what success looks like. And, and that's something I think that we'll, we'll start to uh, close out this episode is, is in terms of what success for the circular economy really looks like. So to sum it all up, what do you have for us, Chelsea? Well, I reckon if we can move Australia's economy anywhere 
towards near where the Netherlands is and we can measure the number of resources that we are um, having circulate and reuse. Um, certainly the Circularity Gap Report can help us to track our success in this area. But the circular economy isn't about just one manufacturer changing one product, which is happening here. We are going to need all the companies that form our infrastructure and economies to come together and collaborate um, in that way. So uh, to be honest, I always come back to collaboration as being the key. And if we can collaborate and think outside the square, and um, that's where, you know, the Aspire platform is so great because we'll be thinking in different ways to um, collaborate and share um, in ways that will take extra energy and effort, but that is really the way that we're going to get there. Collaboration is, is really the key because, again, it's, it's across councils. It goes from local to regional to national to global, and it, it really sets the precedent. So I, I, um, I really like what I'm hearing. And so just to close out this episode, look, you, you do a lot of work for Biobag. And I know that we've actually communicated a little bit about that work of yours. Can you, um, can you talk a little bit about to our listeners about some of the stuff you do for them? And then what, what is Biobag? For those Thanks, Marcus. Well, I really love Biobag because as I mentioned before, the biological nutrient side of circular and the idea that products would return to the earth safely is everything that Biobag stands for. So a biobag can be returned to the earth safely with no microplastics or toxic residues. And it, it's also, it's a really important behaviour change tool. We talked about separating resources before. So it enables resource recovery and it enables you to capture that resource easily, hygienically. Councils give them out to householders because they know and have measured that they're going to capture heaps more food scraps if they give people a biobag than if they don't. So um, in South Australia, where they have the highest resource recovery rate in the country, uh, Biobag is asked by the state government to um, talk at a lot of forums as a circular economy leader, and they're also manufacturing here in Australia. So they're all, um, they can produce custom alternatives, cucumber wraps, they've won uh, innovation awards in packaging for, and um, uh, I really do think that Australia is stuck with this massive problem of too much plastic at the moment. So one issue that I really, um, you know, get a little bit upset about is that putting plastic into a road isn't circular. But at the moment, a lot of industry leaders and people leading our country are saying that it is, but it isn't. Because if you can't recover that resource, it, you might as well be putting it in a landfill as putting it in a road. So, but unfortunately, we're not quite there yet as a country to talk about bioplastic and compostable because we're still dealing with the, um, the, the China sword, um, China not accepting our plastic and what to do with it here. Um, but, uh, but if you look to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and what they say about circularity and regeneration, um, bioplastics are essential to that because we can replace traditional plastic. We can replace oil-based plastic with plant-based plastic, and that's exactly what BioBank does. I think that's absolutely great because we I actually follow a lot of uh, groups and a lot of innovation that's going down that with different allergies and like you said, plant-based and everything. And I think that's just absolutely amazing. Again, let's get back to the economics. For, for small, medium-sized business owners out there, how can they start to implement biobags and these sort of more earth-friendly um, alternatives to plastic? And what, is it, what are the dollars and cents to it? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Obviously, being an Australian-made product and being a compostable product 
Um, supermarkets are, within the next couple of years, going to replace all of their uh, produce rolls with compostable because it makes sense that if you go and buy a bag of beans um, at Woolworths, you're more likely to separate the scraps from those beans or chop off the ends and put them straight in your buy bag and straight in your compost bin or your FOGO bin, which um, FOGO stands for Food Organics, Garden Organics or Green Bins. That councils are busy rolling out around the country as landfill levies rise. Up to 50% of household bins is organic. So it makes so much sense to get them out of landfill because they really contribute to greenhouse gas emissions there. Um, methane being 25 times more powerful um, for global warming than carbon dioxide. So we really need to get those organics out of landfills. So that's where um, dollars and cents wise, supermarkets might pay one cent for a plastic compostable bag at, and then they might have to spend five cents on a compostable. I mean, one cent on traditional plastic produce bag, five cents on a um, compostable bag. So uh, there are a number of supermarkets in Adelaide, um, like Foodland Pasadena, who are already um, have converted to completely plastic-free in their produce sections and delis and bread and everything. They have no plastic produce bags anymore. Woolworths is is gonna they'll follow, but at the moment, um, I think that you know it's we're not quite there yet. Mm, but you know what? It's interesting to me because it really kind of comes down to infrastructure, right? So first off. One cent to five cents, even though that's a lot, uh, it really adds up. It, it really does. But again, if we had the infrastructure in place to do this, where we did have farms and all of these places where we had these large agricultural productions, where we had the means to then turn these into, you know, these plant-based plastics, then is I think would really drive that cost down. So, and you know what? That's happening. I, I get so excited about organics because. Composting facilities exist around the country. There's a massive um, growth opportunity in jobs and economy to return these organics to the soil. Australia's soil is massively depleted. And if we can restore organics to the soil, we can um, increase um, water holding capacity, which is great for agriculture, use less chemicals to grow food and mitigate climate change at the same time. But the coolest thing is, get this, Marcus, um, local councils are paying for biobags at the moment and all they need to do is collaborate with the supermarkets so the local councils help subsidise the supermarkets to distribute the bags that way because data from research, um, some pioneering research in Adelaide shows that you can capture 300% more food scraps from a household when you give them the bag at a supermarket than when you just give them a roll to take home. Yeah, and then again, you said they're bringing out a lot of these bins and so forth. For, for the FOGO bins is a big deal. So uh, around a year ago, only 20% of Australia had access to a FOGO bin, which is food organics and garden organics bin mixed together. Um, a lot of areas have garden organics bins, but you can't put food in them like here on the Gold Coast where I am. But as landfill levies are rising... Uh, that is changing. And FOGO stats for Australia, I need to do a recheck. Um, in fact, we're due for another national waste report that will help answer that. But I think that you'll find they've gone from 20% and in the next few years will be well above 50% of Australia has access to one. Really good stuff. And look, we're going to be leaving your contact details at the, on the Insight into Impact podcast. So anyone can reach out to you over LinkedIn or send an email and so forth. And before we get going, final question. 
other than the businesses that you've already named, what are some businesses or organizations that are doing some really amazing work? And if you could please tell their story. So whether that's a local council, a small to medium-sized enterprise, anyone that's really been on your radar, and you can even name a few that you would really like to say, acknowledge them for their, for their great effort. Well, this one's a cool one. They just won the 2020 Prime Minister's Prize for Innovation. And I'm a bit of a um, fan of innovation. So Lichella has spent $75 million. So we're not talking about SMEs, but in R&D to um, help to return plastic waste into a usable material by taking it back to monomer form and the oil, the, um, the, the oil that it was originally made from, so that you can do whatever you want with it again. So putting plastic into roads isn't circular, but this technique called hydrothermal upgrading turns plastic um, back into its original form, and it's happening at the University of Sydney. Um, that's the um, the professor from there won this award. And um, basically, plastic is a problem, so I really think that's a great solution. But in terms of SMEs, shall I give you another example? Please. Well, my friend David Painter is setting up a Gold Coast tool library and repair cafe. So at the other end of the spectrum, at a community level, this is such a great solution because, honestly, it's just about if everybody who needs a tool for five minutes has to go to Bunnings to buy it, then all of those tools are going to end up in a landfill. So he's setting up um, a in his own home at the moment looking for a premises where everyone can donate their kayaks, tents, power tools, and then he already has a library set up, uh, tool, a web, website set up, tool-library.org where you can check the inventory and if you need that kayak, you know, you can just borrow it. And that those tool libraries and repair cafes are popping up all around the country. Um, and, you know, it's really just about, you know, sharing, the sharing economy. I really hope that this podcast gets shared around and we can actually find David a place to house some of his, um, his resources and these reusable tools and kayaks and, and equipment. That would just be great. That's going to do it for today. Once again, thank you very much, Chelsea McLean. Great advocate for circular economy. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. It's been really fun. Thank you so much. I hope you have enjoyed this week's episode on the circular economy. Tune in next time as we hear from Andres Rocal, social strategist for the extractive industries, which means he creates strategies to benefit both communities and the mining industry. Andres will talk about the importance of stakeholder engagement and the need to understand perspectives in order to manage conflict scenarios. Until next time.